You are listening to the New Street X podcast, where we interview people who understand the intersection of physical and digital collectibles. We're entering an exciting world in the collectible space that involves things like sneakers, NFTs, trading cards, fashion, sports, pop culture, and much, much more. And these things are coming together. So we're here to talk to people that understand that, people that are really building the future of collectibles around the world. Thank you so much for listening. Please follow us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the New Street X podcast. Excited to have here today, Joe Munns. He is the founder of Four Nation Games and head of business development at Collector Crypt. He's worked across trading cards, NFTs, other collectibles, and has a really interesting story. So welcome, Joe. Thanks so much for being here. No, no, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's a Friday Friday evening here, and I've already had about four coffees. So yeah, I'm excited to chat with you. Prepared, prepared. This is going to be great. Oh, let's hear your life story. Let's hear about everything you're doing. I'm thinking maybe the best thing to do here is, can we start off by telling us what Four Nation Games is, how did that company start, and what it's doing right now? Sure. So I guess to, to take you back to the beginning, 2006 or so I was I was eight years old and my my mom came home one day and she she had this silver packet in her hand and you know I was interested in what this is and she gave it to me and it was what turned out to be my my first pack of Yu-Gi-Oh cards and I think ever since I opened this pack and was lucky enough to get this ultra rare you know only a five dollar ten dollar card I was I was pretty hooked in terms of the probably the, the gamification aspect of the, the luckiness. Probably an early signs of me being a slight degenerate in that sense. But yeah, I, I got this pack of cards and I, I said to her that I, I wanted to, you know, start collecting these and I was fortunate enough to, you know, get a, a few more packs, so you know, Christmas and birthdays and that sort of thing. And it was, you know, really, really fun. I, I played Yu-Gi-Oh! ever since then, you know, casually with my friends in the playgrounds, but then on to competitions and whatnot for on and off for the next six or seven years or so, which, you know, started off locally, playground, etc., then going to areas in my region, Sheffield in, in England, and then on to some bigger tournaments in London, Dublin, Milan, and lots and lots of fun, met a, a good community which which kept me there. And then in terms of buying and selling cards, I saw I was spending a lot of time in this community and I was buying it. I was, you know, spending time with people in the industry. And I felt like, why not also add a, an entrepreneurial angle, considering I was spending my weekends there and I, I needed to afford this, this card collecting habits. So I saw an opportunity to buy and sell these cards and founded Four Nation Games, which started as a, a business buying a card for 50p or 50, 50 cents for your American listeners. And then selling it for a dollar, uh, some sort of like, a, I guess, arbitrage sort of uh, business function. And then that eventually scaled up over the years to spending 50 pounds and selling for 100 pounds or, you know, considerably less margins at some point. But that that's the general idea. Yeah, so, so many questions about that. I'm really interested to hear about Yu-Gi-Oh, your experience with it. Again, so many questions. We're just starting off with, what is it about Yu-Gi-Oh specifically that captivated your interest? Because... Of course, there are several trading card games with the, the three sort of biggest being Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, Magic the Gathering. And of course, there are like differences and nuances between. But if you think about, you know, it's like the Mount Rushmore of these the biggest franchises, it's those three. Were you interested in other trading card games as well? Was Yu-Gi-Oh the only one you really cared about? And, and why Yu-Gi-Oh specifically was the one that you like kind of dove deepest into? 
Sure. Uh, I think I think magic was was separate. I've always thought of magic as being uh, marketed to a, an older generation of people. And at the time, at least, they, they didn't have a, a TV show or anything like that to, to help on board the, the younger players. And Pokemon, you know, I love the Pokemon IP, but I don't know why I never got into the trading card side of it. But I always played the, the video games. I think Pokemon Sapphire was my, my first one, you know, a, a great birthday present from uh, one of my aunties. And I got into the, the video game side and loved playing that and tried to collect them all and, and failed miserably. But I, I tried my best. But no, the, the Yu Gi Oh stuff, I think I just, Maybe a first mover sort of advantage where I just was in the game and then I, I got hooked into playing it and collecting. And then, you know, after school, seeing it on TV, et cetera, kind of just amplified that, amplified the motivation to, you know, stay in this this one game. I, I think it's interesting too when you think about all the different ways you can interact with the franchise. Like, I mean, you just seem to like enjoy it, enjoy the story, the franchise, the the creativity behind it. You actually played as a, I don't know, like, competitively. So there was like an, an element of interaction there too. And then also now you're kind of like a, a business hustler in the game, in, in the in the cards as well. So you, there are many ways you interacted with the franchise of Yu-Gi-Oh, which I think is it's interesting. It's kind of a unique thing across trading cards that what the the diversity and holistic experience it can provide someone who's a fan. Now, can you tell me more about like, what does it mean to be playing Yu-Gi-Oh in like competitions? Like you mentioned you went to places like across Europe, across the UK, how far did things get? And maybe for someone that isn't aware of how like the sort of breakdown of how competitions are, the scale of it at a, at a, at a global level, how do those competitions work? And then how, how, well, how, how was your experience working in those competitions? Sure. Yeah. So just to, to preempt you, I was never a, a great player who was winning every tournament, etc. But I was probably better than average at the time. Basically, I think Yu-Gi-Oh! has three or four different levels to competition. There's the the local tournaments, which you generally don't travel too far to because they, they may get 20 or 30 people. And that is, they normally have them in every city and town across the UK, every, you know, sort of, not even a major city, but every sort of generally populated area. And they go on, you know, once, twice, three times a week, depending on where you are. There's the regional ones, which is, you know, a, a bigger one for the region. So in my city of Sheffield, that would be a monthly tournament, which uh, would generally get 150 people or so, all competing for, for one prize. And then they would have these national tournaments, which once or twice a year, which can get upwards of, I think, 2,500 people is one of the, the biggest ones. And those sorts of ones, you know, you play in this competition, you play, I think, about 10 rounds. And then if your your record was, say, better than 7-3 or 8-2, 8 wins, 2 losses, then you get through to the the top cut, which is 32 people play a, a knockout tournament. And then there's, you know, eventually one winner crowned. Um, on top of that, I never got to this level, but there's a, a once a year world championship normally held somewhere in Europe, America, or usually Japan, where there's, you know, really big prizes. You get the the voice actors from the, the Yu-Gi-Oh card game coming. It's a huge, huge, you know, event, which is a, a big marketing event for Konami, the company behind Yu-Gi-Oh. Now, I'm really curious. Okay, so let's say you're you are cuz I'm really interested in the scale and what 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 it actually means to be like let's say one of the world's best Yu-Gi-Oh players. If you were someone like let's say who became in the top 3, 5, 10 around the world, what is that sort of imply when it comes to someone's potential like I don't know, earnings, right? And then also is the ecosystem developed to the point where, like, let's say you're the number one, two, three Yu-Gi-Oh player in the world, you earn X amount of money, roughly. But also, 
is is it common to have like a lot of brand deals? Does that person then expand their commercial? Because I'm I'm also knowing that you you whether at a different scale, you've also kind of looked at it from a business perspective in addition to being a player. But let's say hypothetically, I'm thinking like as as time goes on, the more and more I have respect for people that are like trading card game, like athletes, if you will, you have a fairly common understanding of how that person monetizes the, the levels are, whether someone is the best player in the NBA or the Premier League or at a lower level and what kind of companies they work with. Can you walk me through like, if you're one of the best Yu-Gi-Oh players in the world, you know, like what kind of money are you earning? What kind of other business ventures do you have? And how does that work exactly? Sure. So on a, a direct basis, a direct, I guess, price support basis, unfortunately, or fortunately for some, it's, it's very, very top heavy. You generally have to place in, I think, the, the top six or, or so in the world every year in order to gain, I guess, something that would be equivalent or, or more than equivalent to, I guess, a, a typical annual wage. So unless you're your top six, which, uh, you know, does come with an element of randomness because uh, there's a knockout tournament, etc. You, yeah, you're, you're not going to be able to give up your day job in terms of direct price support. But I guess over the, the past few years with, I guess, all these new technologies, new, new ways to interact with fans and customers, Yu-Gi-Oh! players have become, I guess, KOLs or mini celebrities in the, the area. So they've managed to sell their services through training services like Metify, which lets you teach players how to play Yu-Gi-Oh! or, or many other games. And they've been able to monetize that sort of way. Uh, I don't know somebody's numbers, but uh, I think for the, the time they put in, you know, they can earn a, a good, they earn a good hourly wage. They can charge, you know, 50 or even $100 per hour to sell services on Metify. And then for wider brand deals, it's something that's growing in the space. I think it's going to be a lot easier with the the advent of, I guess, Yu-Gi-Oh's newish experiment, the, the Yu-Gi-Oh Duel Links, which is a mobile virtual game, which I think actually Konami just released their, their annual report and it was the, the biggest, the best-selling mobile game, at least outside of China, you know, excluding Tencent, etc. The highest-selling mobile game of last year, I think taking home over I think 150 million in revenue. So it's it's growing fast. And I think that players in the next one to two years might start seeing commercial deals. You know, I, I'm not saying they're going to go get sponsored by Nike or Adidas, but possibly some sort of thing on a, a smaller scale where Konami themselves or, you know, other card games like Nintendo's Pokemon may come along and try and bring them over and get them in the game to bring over their fans. But But do you think that there is possibility for Nike or Adidas to actually end up sponsoring Yu-Gi-Oh athletes at one point because I think I think it was Adidas, but they did like a collab, a Yu-Gi-Oh based collab with um, Adidas Sambas recently. I want to I want to say Adidas, or it was some other shoe brand, if not. But when I think about the growth trajectory of Yu-Gi-Oh, it sounds like you know the community is growing. You mentioned those experiments like Konami's coming out with. What, where do you think like this goes? Does this stay something that the the Yu-Gi-Oh niche will have a ceiling? Or is there a possibility, and of course we can't predict the future here, that like 50 years from now, Yu-Gi-Oh's ascendancy becomes so big that there is a possibility that a, a brand like a Nike would find a Yu-Gi-Oh athlete at the top of his or her game to be someone that they could endorse? Because you also see this with like esports, and it's, it's not the same thing, but esports may be the idea that someone who played League of Legends would be signed by a big sports brand seem impossible or crazy, but now that is happening and it's increasingly happening. Do you think that there's that trajectory available for Yu-Gi-Oh as well? 
I would love to see it happen. You know, I've seen people like Ninja in Fortnite and Tifu as well, been signed by these, you know, these huge companies to, you know, go and present TV shows and to have licensing deals. I, I think Tifu just came out with his own, I can't remember if it was an NFT or a trading card collection, you know, monetizing his own IP that way, which was a complete sellout. So I think it's definitely possible. I think possibly the, the top heaviness of Yu-Gi-Oh! is a a detractor from that just because if you know a professional gamer let's let's say a ninja or a tifu wanted to come over to Yu-Gi-Oh to possibly win these competitions and monetize that way then it's hard for them to to give up a, a job or a career to practice Yu-Gi-Oh to put in the hours if they're only gonna you know even start to recuperate their costs if they place in a, a top six in the world situation so it's definitely possible is it probable I think uh, is not something that I, I could answer but I, I would love to see it happen because I was ima- I would imagine too that when you and I'd love to get now into like the specifics of four nation games and everything, but when you're also projecting out, let's say the viability of a business that you were creating in, in the Yu Gi Oh trading card space, you're also thinking like, okay, well, how big can this get, right? Like, is this just like a side hustle to me that I can make a few hundred thousand dollars pounds a month, or if it's something that becomes like a fully fledged business? So maybe taking that line of thinking, can we get into more detail about? So you're so you're obviously Yu-Gi-Oh fan from like the early years of your life started playing it trading trading cards going to tournaments and then you saw like an arbitrage opportunity when it came to buying and selling cards how how did the founding of four nation games happen and was this like again just like a a side hustle that seemed like a lot of fun or did you have ambitions to make it like a fully fully grown business at some point in the near future no, it was, it definitely started as a side hustle. It was, hey, let's, let's, you know, 20, 20 pounds a week in order to, to afford me to, to play in these Yu-Gi-Oh tournaments and do it as a side business. And then that turned into, hey, I can actually make a bit of money for this. I'm going to university next year. Let's, you know, try and make enough to, to pay for university. You know, I, I don't want to, you know, ask my parents for money to support my, my university or my, my college time. Let's do that. And I, I was fortunate enough to, to make that work. One of the the turning points for me that you know managed to scale it into less of a, a side hustle and at the time what was my my main business was meeting these people from all over the world. I saw sometime I think 2014 or so 2015 uh, I was at a, a Yu-Gi-Oh event in London and I heard some some strange accents and it turned out to be these three or four American guys who were, who had come over. And I got sat down and talking to them, and it turns out they they weren't there for their their passion to play Yu-Gi-Oh. They were there to you know make some money by reselling these cards and purchasing these cards. And I, I was you know flabbergasted. I was I was shocked and surprised because basically what I was you know thinking these guys have paid three four thousand dollars on a you know on a good day to to come here for the week to to buy and sell these cards. You know how are they making enough money? And I, I basically found out that there was a geographical arbitrage opportunity where some cards are worth more in the US and worth more in Europe and vice versa. So they were essentially buying the, the cheaper cards in the US, coming to Europe and selling them, and then buying the cheaper cards in Europe and taking them back. And I, I you know, I was, I'll stand it. Yeah, I was astonished and I, I couldn't believe it. And then I, I saw... Uh, probably yeah, a year later, there was the the same opportunity with uh, Japan and you know the wider APAC area. So uh, it's something that I really got into with the the networking side and meeting people. And I think by that stage, yeah, you know, it definitely was my my full time business throughout university. Um, and it, it paid for you know more than enough to cover my you know tuition, accommodation, etc., and and then some. So just seeing this opportunity, meeting these people, it was a lot of fun. 
it still is a lot of fun. And yeah, it, it was definitely a, a main business by them. Yeah, I, I love that, you know, you talk about the geographic arbitrage because it's make, it, it kind of paints the picture, which I don't think, I mean, people probably listening to this don't need to be convinced by this, but for someone that is very far removed from trading card games, they might be like, this sounds like Yu-Gi-Oh cards are operating like an actual functioning market, which in many ways they are. And you have geographic arbitrage opportunities. So in that situation, like let's say I buy cards in America that I know will sell at different prices in Europe or different prices in Asia. What's usually the cause of that? Is that just like the like localized demand where like, I don't know, Italians have a higher affinity to these particular Yu-Gi-Oh cards and Americans don't? Like, I'm just thinking what... If you were to break down and analyze why those arbitrages exist, what why do they exist? And like, what's an example, if you will? Uh, I think a lot of it is on the supply side. So it's not always the case, but generally demand is pretty pretty level across areas. If some if there's a good card in America, it's probably going to be good in Europe. But on the supply side, there might be one that's only printed every year. There's some that are printed in a, a German advent calendar. So those cards generally go for more in the US than they do in Germany, because you know in Germany you can walk into you know, any shop pretty much and buy them. But the US, you know, you can't get them. And I guess it's uh, also an economies of scale thing because for somebody to just import one advent calendar into the US, you know, you're going to be charging three, four times retail with, you know, shipping and customs and that sort of thing. So it's really up to these individual people to, you know, I guess, take advantage of the the market and, and take them over in order to please the American customers. One of the, the best ones that was, you know, existed for me at least was a Yu-Gi-Oh card called uh, Utopia the Lightning. And this card was £5 in the UK, which is, you know, $5, $56. But in the US, it was, you know, incredibly hard to get and it was selling for about $35. So you could easily go buy 100 of these in the UK and even take them to a store in the US who would give you $20 each at a, a wholesale price. And, you know, you're still making 300% margins. So it made a, a lot of sense and that, you know, the, the Americans were happy to, to get this card. And it was, a, I guess, a, a win-win for everybody. Uh, and then, you know, vice versa, America would also bring their cards over to Europe. No, this this is amazing because, like, as you know, you know, at New Street, we, we talk to folks across sneakers, cards, NFTs, but also, you know, even broader than that. And the way you're talking about you, your Yu-Gi-Oh! experience right now, I just, I just find fascinating because I also think about other questions that I've asked people that are sneaker resellers, like I want to ask you right now, you know, like, and one of these questions is like, as you are reselling, I don't know if, you, if that's the right term, but like trading, reselling, buying, selling, providing Yu-Gi-Oh cards to people around the world. Do you just do this kind of on your own? Because I know, for example, from like sneaker resellers, sometimes they just operate with like a Facebook page and someone messages them saying, hey, do you have this pair? And then I say, yes, then I'll ship it out to them. Obviously, a reseller in the sneaker world could also use a platform like an eBay or a StockX, etc. Or some sneaker resellers can create their own platforms, which might be still like generating millions in revenue, but not at the scale of like a StockX. But but they create their own marketplace and we focus on a niche, focus on a particular type of product, particular type of demographic. When it comes to you, and I'm fairly aware of like all those elements for TCG, like people that just do it on their own, people that sell on these bigger marketplaces or have their own like kind of bespoke marketplaces. From your experience, how are you doing that? And then also, what's the difference between someone who just sells Yu-Gi-Oh cards and just, I don't know, makes a few hundred thousand dollars making taking advantage of these arbitrages and then going all the way to like at the higher end? What's the people that you were in touch with most directly that... Because I, I guess actually Four Nation Games as a company, was is this... 
on the scale level, like how how big did things get as well? I know, sorry, a lot of questions baked into there. I'm just like really interested in like the business thinking behind it. So yeah, I would sell, you know, I have an account on basically every reseller platform, eBay, TCG, card market, TCG player, et cetera. But for a lot of the the sales that I did with this arbitrage opportunity, it was a lot of wholesaling. Just because if I'm only in the US for, you know, three days or a week, then I can't find, you know, a hundred or a thousand individual customers to pay these top prices. And, you know, nor did I need to. It was a lot more efficient, you know, offloads 50% or 100% of the inventory to, to one or two people. So, yeah, despite I would have a, you know, account on eBay and account on uh, card market, but a lot of it would be Facebook and through my, my network, which was, I guess, a moat to my business model. Cause, you know, even if someone else saw the opportunity, they might not know the people to resell it to. And in order to get these prices or margins, there were some cards that, you know, less on the arbitrage side where, you know, I'd happily just put them on eBay UK. Probably generally the lower end ones are the cards that I may have one of in the inventory which, you know, I just put on there for, for five pounds or so and, you know, hope it sells. But that, for me, at least, that wasn't the, the main function of my business. And for your, I think your second question, the scale of things, you know, on the, the low end, you might have, I guess what I referred to in the, the industry is backpack vendors, people who walk around with a, a binder of cards at an event and, you know, may sell, buy and sell cards, do a, you know, a little bit, supplement their income as I, I did at the, the beginning. And then, you know, on the, the top end, you've got the the troll and toads of the world who, you know, are probably eight or maybe even nine figure businesses in terms of how much they, they sell. I was, you know, definitely not at that, that top end, not on that sort of scale, but, you know, somewhere somewhere in the middle, definitely, you know, more than enough to, to help with some, you know, stock, property, NFT investments in order to, you know, help companies have joined. But yeah, not not enough to buy me a, a mansion in California. <laughs> not yet, not yet. We'll see. You know, and and I really like you know you're obviously your your business experience has expanded to beyond just formation games, which I'm going to get into in a second with you doing where you're doing collector crypt, and also love to learn more about pre collector crypt, the kind of stuff you were doing. But maybe just to kind of wrap a bow around the formation game stuff. So now, as as I understand it, do you you still operate formation games as a Full, fully fledged business, even though it's not 100% of your time. And at this point now, I mean, when you think about someone like yourself, who's involved with several projects at once, is Four Nation Games at this kind of inflection point where, you know, whatever your current like ARR is or whatever, you just kind of maintain it at its current level through all those ways that you mentioned? Or is the plan to kind of, I don't know, at some point in the future, expand it, just want to keep it the way it is? It's like a side adjacent business like what is next for four nation games sure so yeah it, it has slowed down partly you know the industry boomed in 2020 2021 and then as as gradually slowed and that you know took a toll on everybody's businesses i think a lot of people were stuck with this inventory etc i pivoted my business model probably 2020 when i, I got a, a job at a hedge fund which i'll, I'll come back to uh, in order, f- and I changed that from, I guess, a trading or reselling business to more on the, the investment side. I'm a, I'm a big fan, just a slightly tangent, I'm a big fan of, you know, Warren Buffett of Berkshire Halfway. And I think he said in the, the 70s, he would buy and sell these businesses that he, he called cigar butts. And it, was, it wasn't trading, but he would buy a business for 60 cents on the dollar, liquidate it, sell it for, you know, a dollar. And I think that's what I was doing. And now I'm looking for, as he does now, these these compounders that are, are going to be a card that I, even if it costs $5,000, $10,000 now, that I think in the future is going to be, you know, 15, 20, something that at least outperforms the S&P and whatever my opportunity cost would be. So I think that's what my business has pivoted to. 
The investment side of it, you know, definitely the past year has, has not made any money, you know, took some losses in that respect. Uh, but in terms of, you know, if I sometimes I think about that, and, you know, it's obviously a, a bad thing. But then I, I think back to where I was in, in 2016, where, you know, I, at 2016, I, I couldn't have afforded to pay for my university, etc. So I, I'm very fortunate in that regard. Uh, and I, I forgot your, your next question. Oh, no, no, all good. I, I, well, actually, I, I'd love to just get deeper into your sort of finance background too, like with, with the hedge fund experience. And then obviously, we're slowly making our way to collect the crypt where you are today. But I'd love to just hear your obviously your, your full story leading up to it. But really quickly, just I just came to mind, like, why is it called Four Nation Games? Sure, that's a, that's a good story. Four Nation Games, something that I, I don't really discuss much. I was a high-level gamer called Uncharted and The Last of Us. Yeah. And I had a, a video game team. These these games were, were tiny, you know, nothing like Call of Duty or Fortnite at a small community. In fact, I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, Naughty Dog IP. I think I'm actually wearing a, the Last of Us shirt and, you know, the TV Which shows. Which is now a very popular series, right? So It is, but in 2013, it wasn't that popular. It was quite niche. But my we my team at the time we we played in a video game tournament and we had I think it was a British guy an Indian guy an American guy and a guy from I think the Czech Republic and that was our team was made of four people so we were called the the Four Nations team and then moving into the trading card world a lot of businesses just took a word like there was a business called Super Games you know took a word Super and added games on the end so I, I just did the same thing. Four Nation games. And it kind of almost foresaw my geographical element to it. And then when people would ask me later, I'd say, yeah, it's because I, I sell cards in UK, wider Europe, America, and Asia. So it, it just kind of made sense. <laughs> That's great. Well, I'm also picking up, like, I'm glad you mentioned the sort of Uncharted Last of Us stuff, because it sounds like you're you're even quite a competitor across a few different things at like a international level. You know, Yu-Gi-Oh, Uncharted, like Naughty Dog Games, Uncharted Last of Us. Is is that still? Is that is there? Are there any other things that you've kind of played a role in in terms of like competition? And and also, do you still play those games at like a sort of as a, at a team level, or is that more on the back burner now? No, those are, are all definitely on the back burner. I played a bit of the the Pokemon video game, but never in a I guess any sort of regional or above competition. Living in Hong Kong now, I, I've joined the the video game community here, but I don't play very often. Uncharted and The Last of Us was a long time ago for me. That was, I think The Last of Us was 2013, and I probably stopped in 2015 before I went to university. But no, it was something I enjoyed, and uh, I've been reliving it and actually collecting these collectibles from that time recently with the Uncharted movie, I think, last year, and then the, the Last of Us TV show this year. So it's it's been interesting, you know, utilizing both of my backgrounds for that. But yeah, I was a big player at the time, but that that definitely dropped off. One one other question on this because I, I feel like there's so many different angles I want to pull on here. Like you've had a very interesting life. Like and each 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 time you drop like a new story, like I didn't know about, like I had no idea about the Uncharted Last of Us stuff. It makes me want to like just talk about that for 30 minutes. But got a lot to cover, so I'll just ask one last question on this because it's interesting to me that you, there's different ways to unlock or expand IP. And I think about Uncharted and The Last of Us, two, two franchises that I just thought of as games when I first heard about them, because like, oh, Uncharted, that's that game that came out. Last of Us, that's that game that came out. Since then, both of them have turned into entertainment franchises in the sense that the Uncharted movie came out. 
I don't know if that's going to continue or expand, but Last of Us, that the TV series just came out, that seems to be getting incredibly good reviews. And I, I know that's definitely going to generate, you know, obviously like ancillary merchandise and like experiences probably and different ways for like new series based around it, maybe spinoffs, et cetera. And then also now I'm, I'm learning, which I didn't know until you mentioned it, that there was like a competitive, like performative element to people actually playing Uncharted and Last of Us. So there's probably like, revenue streams from the the competitions or the different things that you were doing there. Do you see these franchises expanding? And also when I think about it as time goes on, like video game IP that starts as video games and then expands into other things. That's just like a major trend I'm seeing. So one, do you think the Uncharted and The Last of Us will continue to expand given your like above average deeper connection to that franchise? And also are there other video game franchises right now that you think could end up being like, this is a kind of big question here. Might as well just throw it out there. Like the, the next sort of Yu-Gi-Oh! Pokemon magic that aren't might not be obvious right now. Yeah, so Uncharted and The Last of Us, I think Uncharted is definitely at least going to have a sequel and things might depend how that performs. I know the first one did well, but not amazing at the, the box office. So I can definitely see that happening. Video games, I'm not sure. I, I played the video games and I think it was Uncharted 4 tied things together pretty nicely. And they, they've done a few spin-offs. Uh, so it's definitely possible, uh, but I, I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen there. The Last of Us, yes. I think the show, I think, was HBO's biggest launch ever and maybe biggest series ever behind Game of Thrones. So I think there, there's no way they're going to drop that. I could see a Another Well, they've got another video game releasing this year, which is, I think it's a multiplayer-only game, which I might have to convince my, my fiancé to, to let me get a PS5 and jump on jump back on that. But yeah, I think, I think they're definitely going to expand that. As for the wider question, yeah, I think, you know, if you have a good IP and a good team behind the IP, as, you know, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh!, the guys at Naughty Dog of Uncharted and The Last of Us did, I think, yeah, it's, it's pretty much endless. You know, I think Yu-Gi-Oh! and I think just and Pokemon as well, I think started as a, a manga, a, a book or a comic, and then went on to the, the anime and the card game side of it. And then, you know, Pokemon, the video game, and Yu-Gi-Oh! the video game side of it. I think there's, you know, a lot of stuff in the space. Pokemon now, even talking about the Web3 side of it, which I have no idea what that's going to be. There's a lot of applications there. It could be in the physical cards and all the, the applications there. It could be in the video game itself. It could be for Pokemon Go. I've got no idea, but I'm really, really excited to find out. Mr. Joe Munz, a man of many talents and interests. And we haven't even talked about <laughs> NFTs yet or Web3, which is like obviously a big mm-hmm. part of like what we're both working on today. But I again want to get different elements of your story here. So maybe... One last thing before we get into, let's say, Collector Crypt and the NFT space. Sounds like you mentioned earlier that while you were working on Fortnite Games, which you still are now, and after you graduated from university, you got involved in, in finance and worked at a hedge fund. Could you maybe walk me through the different steps between, okay, let's say when you enter the professional world, worked at a hedge fund, and then what led you eventually to, I think maybe one or two steps later, to where you are today with the Collector Crypt and everything happening across like physical, digital, NFTs, Web3? Sure. So my, my path, I, I studied finance in London, which, you know, is probably the financial hub of Europe. It, it definitely was before Brexit. Now, you know, there's probably a debate there, but I, I think it still is. And I, I wanted to work in finance. I've been, you know, incredibly interested in finance for a long, long time. 
I was interested in it at a school, at an A-level sort of time. And then, you know, university studied it, interned there and decided it's what I wanted to do. So I joined a, a small hedge fund in, in London and they were a startup launching a, a long short fund. And I was the, the one and only analyst there. I, I learned how to, you know, analyze businesses, what makes it a good business run. Etc. Part of my interview process was talking about card games, and I think I pitched I pitched a collector's universe as a, a stock actually, and talked about them, which was it was an incredibly interesting time. <laughs> Can we pause and, and like, okay, well, so many things I want to talk about there, but okay, like, <laughs> could you summarize what your pitch was? So, I mean, again, just so I understand, so you're interviewing for a job at this hedge fund, and one of the questions you're asked, like, okay, Joe, tell us an investment suggestion or decision we should make. And then what were you saying then? Sure. I think it was a, a pitch, a, a long and a short, so a buy and a sell. And for my buy, my sell, I was probably pretty underprepared. And I, I won't go and tell you what, what company I, I recommended was going to go down in value. But for my my buy, I talked about Collector's Universe, which if people don't know, is, is now changed its name to Collector's and is the parent company behind PSA. And it wasn't at the time, I don't believe, but it was a, the parent company behind Golden and a load of other uh, subsidiaries. And the, the pitch basically was a lot of their, their business is probably being... PSA basically offered this service, which they have incredible pricing power. They've got you know such a moat that they are you know the number one grading company in, this, in the industry. You know The volume speaks for itself. I think it's five times, at least five times ahead of the others. I think their service is phenomenal and they they had incredible pricing power you know at the time i think a card was 10 or 12 dollars to grade and i think there was no reason that people wouldn't spend 30 dollars to grade a card i think that was later shown in you know the back end of 2020 where they had to increase prices just because they had so much demand and you know eventually stopped their service but the the pricing power was a key element to it i think they had incredibly good leadership they had you know, the, the possibility of horizontal and vertical integration with other companies in the industry, it was untapped. I was, you know, as I am now, I was bullish on the collectibles market as a whole, which, you know, definitely it, you can have a great business, but if there's headwinds, it, it doesn't, you know, it's not going to do you any good, but incredible tailwinds in the industry itself. And I, I thought the business had a lot of potential, you know, it was three years ago. So I, I'm not, you know, I think over three years ago, so I'm not, you know, precisely remembering the, the pitch itself. But it was a, an interesting situation that led to a lot of activism in the industry of people wanting to take the company private, companies defending like hedge funds saying, no, don't take this private. There's a lot of shareholder value to be unlocked, which I think is an incredibly interesting story, which you know you could do a, a whole uh, podcast about. Yeah. And I basically said, you know, I have a, you know, I probably have above average knowledge about this industry. I think this is what's going to happen. And they... I think my interviewer probably looked at me like I was a little crazy talking about, hey, I wasn't saying let's buy Apple or Microsoft. I was like, hey, let's buy this you know, little known company out of the States. But yeah, it, it would have turned out to be a great investment and has been a phenomenal investment for the, you know, the group that bought Collector's Universe, who then you know, subsequently took it private. But yeah, it was bringing my, my two backgrounds together in that sense. And, and I love how also... You know, we're talking both about the physical collectibles world and then getting into NFTs Web3, the digital collectibles world. So you're at this hedge fund and then kind of walk me through the the next steps again that led you to where you are today with Collector Crypt. Sure. So 
actually for uh, I guess prior to that for, for personal reasons with my my girlfriend now fiance I wanted to move to Hong Kong and being in London you know it and at the time visas etc COVID was incredibly difficult to just you know get up and move so I, I got a job at Amazon and my idea was to internally transfer to Amazon in Hong Kong and then halfway through my time there I had a, a job offer for an NFT marketplace in Hong Kong. So I moved here for that and was incredibly interested in the space. And we started building out this digital physical product. Unfortunately, just before our launch, the, the company closed down due to the, the stuff that happened with FTX. But then I, I found a, a great job you know, from a collector's script in an advisory and business development role where we are building out this physical digital bridge, which you know I'm, I'm happy to get into. No, uh, it's interesting that, I mean, in a way, NFTs were not, I mean, obviously NFTs weren't a thing forever, but you talked about your journey across things like Yu-Gi-Oh, finance, video games, and then kind of NFTs just like pop up. And one of the things I've actually heard from a lot of people is that generally speaking from my personal experience, people that have had an appreciation for things like, let's say video game skins or trading cards, it was quicker for them to understand the value proposition of NFTs versus folks that, let's say, still seems like a weird thing. Like, what do you mean like a digital item can be valuable? Why is digital scarcity important? Why would I or anyone be spending money on these things? Maybe as a way to analyze your entry into the NFT space, which maybe you can answer directly as well. But would you say that's 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 fair and accurate that, you know, when NFT technology came about, like when you stumbled upon it, what was your thought process? And did you see the value very quickly when you first heard about NFTs? So yeah, quicker quicker than most, but still wasn't instantaneous. I basically saw these things called NFTs. It was when I was working at the, the hedge fund. So probably mid to late 2020, I think. And I, I started doing a bit of investigating, trying to learn about the space. Uh, fortunately, our, my, the hedge fund I worked at was partnered with a, a blockchain venture capital company. So I could lean on those guys and, you know, ask all the questions I had. And they were, you know, already completely clued in probably from, you know, years prior and could get me up to date pretty quickly. I then started asking people, you know, about the, the applications in the trading card industry. And I had this idea for this physical digital bridge, this tokenization aspect, probably around the same time. I actually think I posted about it on one of my Twitter accounts. And I said, you know, this this could be huge, this this application. And it, it basically teased... Going back to my Uncharted story, I, I spent hours and hours trying to unlock this this skin, which was, you know, it was a lot of fun playing the game, but a, a lot of it was for the grind to collect these skins. Unfortunately, a few years ago, they it was, it was Uncharted 2, which was a game from 2009. So, you know, now probably had a, a thousand players or so. So they, they closed the server. It wasn't, you know, economically viable, completely understandable. But they closed the server and my skins have, you know, gone forever now. I'm, you know, never going to be able to get those back. And I would have loved to, you know, if they were NFTs, if they were blockchain, you know, you would actually, you know, own them yourself. And, you know, hopefully they would be applicable in a future game. Like imagine putting your skin on the, bringing it into Fortnite or even if they wanted to keep it in the, the Naughty Dog family, you know, to the Uncharted 3, 4 or The Last of Us, that sort of thing. So I think there's an application there. But for me, I was always interested in the probably the infrastructure of the the physical to digital side, given my my background in the physicals and and how those two could be linked together. Yeah, could you could you articulate that a bit more? Because a physical to digital bridge, I think 
I mean, for me, that makes sense. But let's say you are explaining to someone why you find a physical to digital bridge valuable and relevant to someone that, let's say, does not have a tech background, that does not is not close to this space. Like, where is the NFT value proposition if you were to explain it in like the most layman terms possible? Sure, uh, a few options. I think number one, I think you've most collectors when you you sit down and talk with them, they like owning an item. That doesn't mean they'd like to look at the item every day. I learned this from one of my good friends who probably 2015 or so was probably the, the biggest collector in the whole of Yu-Gi-Oh. And I think I asked him one day, you know, how often does he look at his stuff? Because he had a, a Kyber briefcase. Kyber, one of the main characters in Yu-Gi-Oh, had a, a briefcase, you know, modeled after him. And he said, I, I don't look at them. They're just under my bed or in a, in a vault somewhere. And at the time, I think I thought that was strange. Why would he own these items not to look at them? But then with NFTs, I think there was a there's a value to be the ownership of an item, even if you don't have it on hands. So what Collector Crypt, my my company does, is we we tokenize these goods. So your Yu-Gi-Oh card, Pokemon card, basketball card, etc. Any physical item, although we're we're starting with card games, is sent to a vault. So this vault is in Delaware. You know, so for the US people, that just means there's there's no sales tax, etc. This vault is in Delaware. The cards are sent there. And in return, you get an NFT. This NFT is like a, a vouch almost. It's a digital representation of your item. And it's the, the ownership rights of the item in the vault. So you can put it in your NFT wallet and you can say to everybody, hey, I've got this item. Here is the proof. You know, you can verify it here, etc. You can flex it, which has become a big thing in the industry, you know, showing off, etc. The same way that somebody chooses to buy Louis Vuitton, they like to show their, their digital items and say, hey, I've got this. And it means there's a lot of other advantages as well. You don't have to store your own item, which for, for most people is an advantage. We're not going after the market of people who you know, want to put their $100 card on their, you know, on their side and show everybody in their room. You know, we're, we're not going to try and convince those people we have a, a better mousetrap. But I would say for the other 90% of people, we do have this better mousetrap. And there's a ton of other advantages. Given it's all digital, it allows uh, people to take collateralized loans. So we're, we're partnering with some of the big loan companies. So people, let's say they, they want to keep their item, but they want to borrow some money against it. Traditionally, you can't go to a bank and say, hey, I've got a blue eyes white dragon. Please give me a thousand pounds and uh, I'll pay you back 1100 and you give me back my blue eyes. That doesn't really happen. It's inefficient. But using blockchain and their technology, you can say, hey, I've got this item. It has this value. It's based off this history. It's digital. In two clicks, you can give me a loan. And I'm going to give you it back because if I don't give you it back, you get to keep this NFT, which is you know, the value of this card. And yeah, there's a ton of other advantages as well, but uh, I'll let you ask some questions before I keep monologuing. Totally, totally. This is this is amazing. And you know, I, I had your colleague Tom on a another episode, so he got into detail about collector crypt in, in many ways too. But I'd, I'd love to know just maybe your take on the applicability of the technology to create like a digital version, like to, to bridge a physical asset into the digital through NFTs. We mentioned, you know, we were just talking about higher end. TCG cards across Yu-Gi-Oh, Magic, Pokemon, etc. And of course, you know, a natural part of the discussion would be, is this as applicable to, let's say, watches or wine or fine art, etc. These other sort of higher end collectibles, again, maybe not the $100 price point, but higher. Do you see that this sort of tokenization uh, of a collectible asset, like 
a watch or something, do you think it's as viable or beneficial across many different categories? Are there certain categories you think it doesn't matter for? What would the parameters be to like assess whether this technology can be good for a collector across the board or whether some collectors just wouldn't be valuable or at least less valuable or less obviously valuable? Sure. I think cards have one of the, the biggest use cases. I think that there is a use case in these other industries, art, uh, cars, wine, etc. But there's probably a, a few difficulties. I, I'm not a, you know, a wine connoisseur or, or even a, a wine investor by any means. But I think in order to you know, trade this NFT, it needs to have the value that it can be redeemed at a, a later date. Otherwise, it, it has no value. And from my understanding, wine is a lot harder to, to ship. So, for example, if there was a, an Italian vineyard, you know, has some wine in a, a vault somewhere, the same that we're doing with trading cards, maybe this NFT would only sell to somebody else in Italy because for the redemption process, they, they might want to be local. So while it does have its advantages, it's probably less of an advantage because a, a card can be, I could trade my NFT to, you know, I'm in Hong Kong, I could trade it to yourself in London. You could trade it to Dubai, you can trade it, you know, back to, to Asia and someone in Singapore. And then the Singaporean guy could uh, redeem the card. But for a bottle of wine, it may be more difficult. And maybe if it's in an Italian vault, maybe it would end up staying in Italy, reducing the use case. But it does definitely have its advantages. But off-site storing of cars and other goods may be more difficult than, you know, storing a card in a vault. But a lot of the use cases still apply. You should still be able to take debt out, etc., but storage costs and other things like this makes it less of a use case and less of a priority for collect crypt. Makes sense. No, this this is fascinating. And and I, I know we're kind of running out of time here, but I, I have like maybe I'm just trying to think about what questions I should leave for another episode, maybe, or what questions I should I should do for now. Now, I, I think I'd love to get your assessment on where you see the growth potential of trading card games, maybe Yu-Gi-Oh! in particular. I know like we're seeing some things like I guess, well, there's M&A in the sense that there's TCG Player got acquired by eBay. There are new startups, Collector Crypt obviously being an element of that, but in the TCG space in general that are popping up, whether it's marketplaces or maybe just more content creators. As you look to the future, where do you see growth in TCG? And then maybe as like a sub question for Yu-Gi-Oh! in general as well. Sure. For, for TCG, right now, there's a, a battle of the vaults. So uh, collectors, you know, being prior collector universe, have their, their own vaults. PWCC have them. Alt have it. eBay's has one or, or is launching one. And I think that the use case of vaulting, similar to our NFT technology, is a, a big area for growth. And it's going to be really interesting to see who's going to, you know, win this battle and, you know, vault the, the first 100,000 or first million trading cards. Because I think that has, you know, huge, huge potential, just like artwork, you know, not many people keep a, a real, you know, uh, I was about to say DiCaprio, a, a Da Vinci, etc. at home themselves, because it, it doesn't make sense. But trading cards, I think people and more and more people are going to find out that vaulting is a, a better mousetrap to the existing solutions. So I think that has a lot of growth. There's been, yeah, M&A activity, eBay acquiring TCG player. I wouldn't be surprised if they want to expand to Europe with, you know, possibly card market or, or somewhere like that. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they, they hadn't already been approached and talked about it. I have a, a friend running a sports card marketplace and he's talked about the, the M&A aspects in, the, in that article. I think, yeah, acquisitions, I think they might get more and more difficult as cards tend to grow. Possibly there's some, you know, anti-competition laws that are going to come in. 
as the number of marketplace reduce. For Yu-Gi-Oh, I think, yeah, I think they've got a lot of potential to grow. They've started doing a few more B2C items like direct to consumer with launches of some special commemorative platinum cards, etc. They may follow the, the Wizards of the Coast business model where they start dropping stuff on, on Amazon in order to go D2C, or I think Wizards have previously dropped stuff on eBay. Uh, that's not been what Konami's done, but uh, it could be something they look at doing in the future. Uh, there's arguments on both sides. You know, do they support the stores or do they want to you know, have the higher margins and go straight D2C? I think you know, I'm, I'm bullish on the area. I, I work in the area. Uh, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. And unlike a lot of things, not knowing is incredibly exciting. And I'm just excited to, you know, use New Street, et cetera, to stay up to date with the news um, there and, and find out what's happening in the space. Well, Joe, I, I'm going to ask you the same, like, last two questions I used to close. First being, where can people find you across social media, website, et cetera? And then the second question being, what's one last message you'd like to leave with the audience? Sure. So you can find me. I've started some content creation on, on Twitter and YouTube. That's Joe Munns HK, J-O-E-M-U-N-N-S-H-K. My company, of course, Collector underscore Crip. Got a lot of cool things coming out, a lot of giveaways. So, you know, appreciate any follows, etc. on there. As for my message, just it's, it's a Friday here. So just enjoy the weekend, you know, spend quality time with your friends and family and collect what you love. Amazing. Thanks so much, Joe. No, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the New Street X podcast. You can learn more about the guest in the show notes and learn more about New Street at newstreet.com. Please make sure to like, follow, subscribe across YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and more. Thank you so much. See you next time.